Are you checked in? That's a question that we ended on last week. God has called us to unity. I said last week that the church, Catonsville Baptist Church, as a local church, exists to pursue unity as we make disciples of all nations for the glory of God. God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. When he calls us to something, he provides us what we need in order to be able to accomplish that call. In this case, God has provided each member of the church with a measure of grace, a measure of faith, a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. That measure of grace was poured out by Christ at his ascension as a gift to his people in order for them to be able to preserve the unity of the spirit and to reach full maturity. Each of us are responsible and necessary. Each of us with our varied gifts are responsible and necessary to the body of Christ as each member of our physical bodies are necessary. Each of us are necessary for the building up of the body of Christ, for its maturity, for its unity to accomplish the purposes of God. In fact, in 1 Peter 4.10, Peter reminded us that using our gifts is a matter of stewardship, that each of us are looked at as God, as stewards over what he has given. And one of the things that he has given to us is this measure of grace. I asked then again, and I'll ask now, are you checked in? We can be present in the sanctuary, present in the building, present at social functions that the church has, but not checked in. If you are checked in, you are engaged, you are focused at the task at hand. You see your role and your responsibility, and you endeavor to execute your responsibility to use your gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Is that you, Christian, member of Catonsville Baptist Church? Are you participating and maintaining the unity of the Spirit by using your gifts as we seek to make disciples for the glory of God? That's, again, where we left off last week. I stopped at that point, the point of that question to allow you an opportunity to think about it. And I've been praying over this past week, over this past month, throughout this series for our church that each of us would be convicted by this truth, that each of us would be convicted by this command that Christ has given to his church, this call that he has sent forth for all of his people to participate in his plan to build his church. The power that is at work in the church, the power that we've been talking about since we began this series in Ephesians, the power that God is now presently pouring out in his church is given in measure to each one of us so that we can grow together. That's how God builds the church. He builds the church with us, through us, by the grace that he's given to us. We're returning again to Ephesians chapter 4. We saw in verses 1 through 6 the overall basis for our unity. And I said in verses 7 through 16, we see the blessing of our unity. 
In verses 7 through 10, we saw the very simple statement of fact that God has given gifts to each member of the church for our unity. Again, each one has been particularly gifted by Christ with a measure of grace for the benefit of the body of Christ. As we move on this morning in verses 11 through 12, we'll see that Jesus Christ has given certain gifts to the whole church for our unity. Before we dig in there, I'll read the text once again, verses 1 through 16, so that we have the whole text in our mind, and then we'll start in at verse 11. Again, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the winds and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love father thank you for this time in your word i pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively that they would be acceptable in your sight O lord you are our rock and our redeemer amen Again, in verses 11 through 12, we see that Jesus has given certain gifts to the whole church also for our unity. Again, in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. As we affirmed in the previous section, all gifts that are given to the body of Christ are given for the good of the whole body. Paul will labor to emphasize that truth in the remaining verses of this section. All gifts are necessary. All gifts are equally important in the sense that they all contribute to the good of the body. All are equally missed when they are lacking. All equally affirm the wisdom of God and his design for the church. But if the analogy of the members of the body has any significance, we recognize that they do not all have the same role. The gifts that he mentioned in these verses have a particular function. And that function is crucial for the health of the body in a very specific way. 
And what are those gifts? Again, look at verse 11. Those specific gifts that Paul calls out here with this particular function are the gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, Paul has previously mentioned the apostles and prophets in the letter. In chapter 2, verse 20, he indicated that the church of Jesus Christ was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Concerning the gift of apostle, we've already discussed the office in relation to Paul's ministry. One author has a somewhat long but helpful comment on the discussion of the gift of an apostle. Just listen in to this. He says, and I quote, It was suggested that an apostle is an official delegate of Jesus Christ, commissioned for the specific task of proclaiming authoritatively the message in oral and written form and of establishing and building up the churches. There are three kinds of apostles mentioned in the New Testament. Those who had been with Jesus in his ministry and had witnessed the resurrection. That's in Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Paul, who had been born out of season, 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9. And also those who have received the gift of apostleship. The first two categories are to be regarded as offices, whereas the last is a spiritual gift to the church. In the present context, the apostle refers to the third kind, the gift of the apostle. There were people in addition to the original 12 who had not been with Jesus in his ministry and who did not witness his resurrection, but who were listed as apostles. To mention some, we have Barnabas. You see in passages like Acts chapter 14, James, the Lord's brother, 1 Corinthians 15, also Galatians 1. Apollos, 1 Corinthians 4. Probably Silvanus, 1 Thessalonians 2. Titus, Epaphroditus, and possibly Adronicus and Junia from Romans 16. These all likely had the gift of apostleship. It seems then that the main function of an apostle is to establish churches in areas that had not been reached by others. They are God's messengers to open up new territories for Christ. That's the end of the quote there. I thought that was a helpful way of thinking about the the, the office and the gift and the distinctions of the two. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul indicates that there are particular signs that accompany the gifting of an apostle. The apostles were gifted and set apart. Their giftedness include accompanying signs and miracles, particularly intended to confirm the message that they were preaching as they were foundational to the establishment of the church. They had double duty both as evangelists and teachers for new congregations of believers. Now, there are some who desire to call themselves apostles today. You all have probably heard someone calling themselves and referring to themselves as an apostle before. I'd say they probably hardly reflect the biblical description here. I think that if we were to evaluate the biblical evidence concerning the gifting of an apostle, we'd be able to distinguish a true apostle from a fake. Again, this gift was foundational. The church's foundation is no longer being laid. Therefore, it is unlikely that we'll see this gift in operation today. Likewise, for the gift of prophet, and I think this one tends to be more controversial. Often you'll hear a definition of prophecy that includes what is called foretelling or predicting the future as well as foretelling, meaning that they are explaining something that has already been stated in a meaningful way. In the context of the Old Testament, 
Many will reason that a prophet was able to both foretell the future as well as teach and admonish the people on the basis of the law. That's what they see happening when you read through the prophets. I would argue that the prophets certainly performed the latter function of foretelling. They certainly taught and encouraged people to think about the law, to consider their responsibility to obey the law. But the basic nature of prophecy is, is a lot simpler than that. The quintessential Old Testament prophet, by all accounts, is Moses. Moses spoke with God face to face, according to Deuteronomy 34.10. He spoke with God and communicated the word of God, direct revelation from God to the people. He was a mouthpiece for God. That is the essence of what it means to be a prophet. Yes, there is an element of teaching and holding people accountable to the word of God as it has already been proclaimed. However, one doesn't have to be a prophet to do that. You would just need to be a teacher. To prophesy is to speak on behalf of God, and there is often the accompanying sign of foretelling, meaning speaking future events, since God is the only one who would know that. In Deuteronomy 13, Moses spoke of this. He says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder which he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Moses cautioned the people against listening to and following false prophets whose visions may appear to have come to pass. This was a test that God would send to see if the people's hearts were devoted to him. Moses further exhorted the people to look for a prophet who was like him, who would rise up from among the people, from among the people of Israel. Again, in a similar passage in Deuteronomy 18, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him who you shall listen to. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my word in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that I sh he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Moses set the expectation that a prophet like him would arise, who would speak to God face to face, who would communicate to them the word of God. God would put his words into the prophet's mouth. This is the one who they should listen to. And he would confirm the authenticity of his calling by speaking of future events, which would come to pass 100%. If God is putting his words into the mouth of anyone, and that word is authoritative and binding upon the people of God. In other words, if that were to happen today, we would have to put their word on the same level as Scripture. Now, ultimately, the prophet who was to come is the Lord Jesus. He is the final word of God, according to Hebrews chapter 1. 
Nevertheless, all of the prophets from Moses to Jesus were both an echo of Moses, who spoke to God face to face and communicated the truth of God, and a foreshadowing of Jesus, the prophet who was to come. And all of the prophets who came after Jesus were given as a gift to the church to help establish the church. And they would have been able to predict the future with 100% accuracy. Both of these gifts, apostles and prophets, were foundational to the church. Again, that's Ephesians 2.20. Both of these gifts were granted insights into the mysteries of God's will, Ephesians 3.5. Both of these gifts would have been able to confirm their authenticity of, by signs, miracles, and particularly in the case of prophets, they would have been able to predict future events with 100% accuracy. As such, we do not see these gifts operating in the church today. Now, there's a lot of conversation around the so-called sign gifts and the cessation of certain gifts, and I won't delve into that any further. All I'll say is that if someone claims to be an apostle or a prophet, then they should look like what the Bible says an apostle and a prophet is. They should be able to confirm that work by their signs, by miracles, by 100% prophetic accuracy. And if there is such a person, we would undoubtedly have to regard their word in the same way that we regard scripture. Moving on, again, in the text, Paul says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. An evangelist is just what it sounds, someone who evangelizes. The term is used two other times in the New Testament, once with reference to Philip in Acts 21.8. Much of what is said about Philip's ministry is found in Acts 8, where he's seen frequently preaching the gospel and exhorting those who believe to be baptized. The other reference is 2 Timothy 4.5, where Timothy is encouraged by Paul to do the work of an evangelist. This was in the context of his admonition to preach the word in season and out of season, knowing that many would arise seeking those who would tickle their ears and turning away from the truth. The work of an evangelist primarily involves the preaching of the gospel. Now, the gifting of an evangelist doesn't necessarily have to be accompanied by signs and miracles. That would make it different from that of apostle and prophet. The role of an evangelist is not said to be foundational to the church. Therefore, I would see this as a gift that someone could and, and likely does possess today in the church. There are some who are particularly enabled by the Spirit of God to preach the gospel with boldness, with clarity. And even though that is true, that certainly doesn't take away from all of our responsibility to preach the gospel. It just may be that some are particularly gifted to do so. It may also serve in the church by way of training and encouraging others to do the same. Back to the text, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, if you've heard any teaching on this passage, you'll know that many have debated whether the last two shepherds and teachers should be taken as a couplet or individually. I like the way one author put it, that we can understand them as related but different. He said, while there is a distinction between the two, the distinction is not total. In other words, all pastors are to be teachers, but not all teachers are to be pastors. The gift of teaching is fairly clear, right? Teachers teach. They have the God-given ability to explain and express the clearly revealed word of God in an authoritative way. 
One author distinguished the gift of prophecy from teaching in this way. He says, and I quote, whereas the prophet spoke under the immediate impulse and influence of the Holy Spirit, the teacher would give instruction on that which was already revealed by the prophet or from scripture. Also, the predictive function included in the prophet's role was not a part of the province of that of the teacher, end quote. Again, it's a helpful way of understanding the difference. Prophets were those who received direct revelation from God. Teachers simply teach and explain what has already been revealed. They are the forth tellers, as we referenced earlier. The gift of shepherd or teacher or pastor is likewise related to that of a teacher. The term pastor is essentially a reference to a shepherd. We understand that. A pastor is a shepherd. He's one who leads, encourages, comforts, rebukes, guides, and all by the means of his teaching. A pastor, or often referred to as an under-shepherd, ultimately leads, encourages, comforts, rebukes, guides under the headship of the chief shepherd and by his word. A few things to consider about the gift of the pastor based on Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.15, the one who has the gift of pastor seeks to accurately handle the word of truth, avoiding controversy and unhelpful discussion. They seek to cleanse themselves from things that are dishonorable, fleeing youthful lusts and ungodly passion, 2 Timothy 2.21. They are not quarrelsome but kind to all, 2 Timothy 2.24. They are confident in the word of God that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. Therefore, they preach the word in season and out of season, 2 Timothy 4.1 and 2. Those who are so gifted will seek to exercise that gift in accord with the word of God and not apart from the word of God. They will have great confidence and reliance upon the word of God and use the word of God to shepherd or to guide their people ultimately to the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, this is with reference to the gift, not the office. The gift may be given to anyone in the body of Christ. The reality is that women and children who come to faith in Christ may be gifted as shepherds. It's the gift, not the office. The office itself, the office of pastor or elder in the local church is limited to qualified men, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Those would be men who are gifted as pastor and qualified, according to Scripture, to serve in the role by virtue of their character. But the gifting may be held by anyone. Now, again, all gifts are necessary and important, but not all gifts have the same role. The gifts listed in verse 11 have a particular function. Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. He says that their role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The word equip generally means to, quote, adjust, put in order, restore, or mend. One of the more tangible, concrete usages of the term is as it is used to describe the process of repairing nets. So fishermen would go out daily. They would use the same nets daily. They didn't have the resources to buy nets over and over again. So when they would use their nets and their nets would break from constant use, they would have to repair them. They would have to mend the nets. That's what this idea of equipping is. This group, in other words, are meant to perform the same kind of task for the body of Christ. 
for the members of the church, this group, the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, they have been set apart to mend the nets, so to speak, to equip the saints. They mend the saints. They adjust them. They put them in order. They restore them so that they can do the work of ministry. The word for ministry there is in reference to service. It's the basic word that we get when we translate the word servant. It's also the same word that we use when we get the term deacon. The work of ministry, in other words, is in reference to service that the members of the body of Christ are to perform. Again, as indicated in verse 7, their service has to do with their use of gifts in the body of Christ. If all we had were verse 7, and we were told that members were given gifts for the good of the body, you might wonder how in the world are they supposed to use those gifts? How do they go about doing it? Well, God has provided other gifts to the body to help them to know how to use their gifts so that it would be a benefit to the body. This is that mending, that equipping ministry that that list in verse 11 has. All who are particularly gifted in that way have the role, the same role. This is what they are to devote themselves to in the context of the body of Christ. They are to equip the saints, to mend them, to adjust them, to put them in order so that the saints themselves can do ministry. The apostles and prophets were given to equip the saints as a set of foundational gifts. As the church was first being established, their gifts were provided with accompanying signs to help in the establishment and building up of the church. The evangelists carry on the essential work of the apostles and prophets in blazing trails, proclaiming the gospel in places where Christ has not been known. They help the church by first establishing the church in places where Christ is not known and even helping to encourage others to preach the gospel of Christ. The pastors and teachers are more specifically gifted to lead and guide the church through the revealed word of God. They carry on the essential work of the apostles and prophets in their teaching ministry. They mend the nets. They equip the saints by building them up in the revealed word of God. They instruct, teach, rebuke, encourage the people of God with the word of God so that the body of Christ can pursue the ministry of God. Pastors and teachers do their work of mending through their ministry of the word. A common assumption in the church, and I don't think this is true of Baptists only, the common assumption in the church is that the pastor is the one who does the ministry. He is the minister, and there are no other ministers. Well, that's not what this text says, right? This text says that the role of the pastor, the role of the teacher is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to equip the saints to be ministers, to equip the saints to do the service. This is the design of Jesus Christ for his church. Again, he's poured out his power in the body of Christ, he's poured out his grace and abundance upon the whole body and upon each member in particular. He's given a gift of grace to the body of Christ and particular members of the church. And he's gifted some to adjust, to put in order, to restore, to mend other members so that those other members can effectively do the ministry that God has given them to do so that the whole body is then built up in love. That last part is emphasized in the remaining verses, verses 13 through 16. 
Again, in verses 7 through 10, we saw that Jesus had given gifts to each member. 11 and 12, Jesus has given specific gifts to the whole church. Finally, in verses 13 through 16, Jesus has given all gifts to be used by the church for its maturity until it is unified in him. Look again at verses 13 through 16. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We grow to maturity to the unity of the faith as each member of the body of Christ uses their gifts in love for the building up of the body. The goal is to grow in maturity. That's verses 13 and 14. Again, until we all attain. Until we all attain to what? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God is the big idea. The reason why Jesus has gifted his people, the reason why he gives particular gifts to help equip his people to use their gifts well in order to do ministry, is so that we may all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Remember back in verse 3, we were commanded to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Here Paul says that we've also been gifted and we ought to be using those gifts so that we may preserve the unity of the Spirit. He says we're seeking to be a mature man. Again, we commonly think about spiritual maturity as a function of our own personal relationship with Jesus. People will, in fact, defend their lack of involvement in the church by saying that they have their own personal relationship with Jesus and can learn about him and grow in their own way in their own time. This text states otherwise. The text indicates that Jesus has designed his church to reach maturity in community. In fact, to fail to pursue maturity in community is both a sign of disobedience and a sign of immaturity. Again, he says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, this is not written to individual believers. The scope of this text is the whole body of Christ. We are to use our gifts ultimately for the purpose of having full, mature unity of faith and knowledge of Jesus. This unity of faith and knowledge of Jesus is what it means to be mature. This is how we together reach the stature of the fullness of Christ. When we talk about discipleship, about being Christ-like, everybody wants to be Christ-like. But we can't be Christ-like on our own. We become Christ-like, as the text says, as we gather together in community as each person is engaged and involved in the community, using the gifts that they've been given for the community, and we are all built up as a community to look more like Jesus. That's how spiritual maturity comes. If you are not growing and you're struggling in your walk with Christ, it's because you are not active and engaged in the community. That's what this text says. And for us all to be able to grow, that requires that each one of us be active and engaged and involved 
in the community of believers, using our gifts to serve one another. He says in verse 14, as this happens, as we pursue the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, we do this so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. And why is the word of God so important? Why is expository preaching so important? Why is Bible study so important? Our goal is to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And when we can only do that, be unified in the faith as we learn together, as we serve together, as we learn of the faith together, we're safeguarded against being tossed to and fro by the waves of doctrines, teachings, philosophies that we hear in the world today. Those things crafted by human cunning and deceitful schemes. You won't be equipped to fend off the philosophies of the world today by yourself on your own. But only in the context of the community of believers. As we pursue God's word together, God's truth together. Paul says it this way in Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. He says we must learn Christ. We must cling to Christ. We must be devoted to Christ. We must be equipped by the word of Christ and obedience to Christ and service to Christ. This is why all of what we do, all of what we pursue as a church must find its origin and end in the purposes of Christ through the word of God. That can only happen as we endeavor to pursue the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We're here for his glory. We're here to grow up into him, to reflect him, to look like Jesus. That's what he shed his blood for. That's why he has set his church apart. That's why we're called his workmanship. We're set apart to look like him. And he's designed his church so that each one of us has a part in that. It's not just on the shoulders of one person. It won't happen by one person. It'll only happen as we all gather together, as we all engage and pursue. The goal is to grow to maturity, to a unity of the faith, and we ultimately reach that as members serve in love, verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, as opposed to falling in step with the philosophy of the world, we're to remain faithful to the truthfulness of God's word. We're to speak his truth to one another in love. There are speaking gifts, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and yet we're all exhorted to speak truth to one another. In Colossians 3.16, Paul says it this way, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The way of the world is to speak your mind. People pride themselves as being those who speak the truth, who, who speak from their heart. They say the truth hurts, and so sometimes they hurt others because they're just trying to speak the truth. Yes, the truth may hurt at times, but believers are not to be those who speak the truth in order to hurt. We speak the truth in love so that we may build up one another, so that we may grow up into Christ. 
We are to grow up into the head, the text says, into Christ. Again, spiritual maturity in community from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The whole body is joined and held together by every joint. Again, using that analogy of a physical body and how the physical body is joined together and works together. There are joints, there are ligaments, there are body parts. We have arms and ways that our arms are connected to the rest of our body. Each part has to be working well for the good of the body. That's the point. We are to speak the truth in love and we grow up in love. We are to use our gifts in love so that we may grow up in love. Love is to permeate all that we do and the way that we do it. He mentioned love previously in verse 2, bearing with one another in love. He says that right before the command to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, as you exercise your spiritual gifts, whatever your giftedness is, it should be exercised in love for the purpose of peace. As each joint and member operate, they must be operating in love. Love is what binds those parts together. It is the glue that what makes all of what we do stick. The reason why should be clear, right? Love requires sacrifice. This is how we know what love is. By this we know love, John says in 1 John 3, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The love that we are to have for one another is the same kind of love that Christ showed for us. It is a sacrificial love. If you do not sacrifice in any relationship, then it is, there's no genuine love there. It's not biblical love, at least. Biblical love requires both the willingness to sacrifice and the act of sacrificing. Love is not a matter of convenience. It's a matter of desiring the best for others. It's a matter of doing and as far as you can help it, pursuing the best for others, regardless of what it costs you. I like this quote from Amy Carmichael. Do everything, anything, however menial, measuring it not by hours or by dollars, but by love. The worry is always a concern for my needs. How will my needs be met if I do not pursue my own good first? This text says that if I am sold out concerned with loving others, loving the body of Christ, using my gift, sacrificing in love for one another, and if they are doing the same, then we will all have our needs met, right? If I'm doing what I'm gifted to do and you're doing what you're gifted to do, then no one's going to miss out because God has designed his body so that each member supplies a part that is needed for the whole. That's the way it works in any relationship. That's the way God has designed the body of Christ. The mission statement of the Church of Jesus Christ, the mission statement of the Catonsville Baptist Church is simple. We exist to preserve the unity of the Spirit as we make disciples of all nations for the glory of God. This is the goal and duty of every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the blood of Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, united in Christ in his resurrection, united with others in the body of Christ, set apart for the glory of Christ, and this applies to you. You must be about seeking to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the community of believers that you belong to as you together seek to make disciples of Jesus Christ from among all the nations for the glory of God that requires that we all be engaged in using the gifts that he's given us the question remains for you believer is that what you are pursuing today 
I don't just mean to have you. Misunderstand me here. I think if you are able to walk away from this passage of scripture, from this lesson, thinking about someone else who should have been here, or thinking that it doesn't apply to you, then I failed you. As I said before, my hope and my prayer has been for each one of us to be convicted by this truth, that each one of us are necessary for the good of the body of Christ. Now, we discussed a number of different kinds of spiritual gifts last week as we looked at the complementary passages in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4. I want to take a few minutes as we prepare to close just to talk about what serving the body of Christ may look like to be more specific, to try to put some skin on this, in other words. I think one of the things, some of the things that it means for each and every one of us is that we must all show up and not just show up, but we must all be engaged. Lip service to our church covenant is not enough. We must be committed to one another, to loving one another, meaning seeking the good of one another to the extent that we endeavor to use our gifts for the building up of one another. We ought to love one another enough to be inconvenienced for one another. We ought to love one another to sacrifice our time, talent, and yes, our treasures for the good of one another. We should all desire to know our risen Savior better, to seek to be unified in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We should prioritize our Sunday morning gatherings. We should prioritize our Bible study time. We should prioritize prayer with and for one another. And we should covet these things for others. When we see them missing from the body of Christ, we should reach out to them and pursue them to draw them back in so that they obey the Scripture. As the Scripture says that we should not forsake our assembling together. And as you know that they are necessary for the building up of the body of Christ. These things are not new that I just said. We read this every time we read the church covenant. You commit to doing this. We commit to walk together in Christian love with truth. We commit to strive for the advancement of the church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort. We commit to promote its spirituality and prosperity. We commit to demonstrate the church's sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin by being faithful in our church attendance on the Lord's day. You say that. We commit to maintain devotions, keep a careful witness in the world, to be zealous to maintain a testimony for the cause of Christ. We commit to watch over each other in brotherly love and spiritual concern, calling each other to follow Jesus, remembering each other in prayer, aiding each other in sickness and distress, and so on. You commit to doing that every time we read our church covenant. That's what you say. You have to be sacrificially and steadfastly showing up for one another, serving one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, seeking one another when we're absent. This is who we are as a church. This is what we commit to do with one another. My older brothers and sisters, as a young believer, you may have had the energy and strength to run around, to be a part of multiple ministries, to build ministries, to sustain ministries, to go door to door, doing evangelism, to be here every week, to clean the church, do all kinds of other things. But as you've gotten older, your capacity for those things may have diminished, but you still have gifts given by the Lord Jesus for the benefit of the church. And you are still required to and responsible for using those gifts for the good of the church. 
You may not be building ministries or leading ministries, but you can play a support role in a ministry. If someone else is building or leading a ministry, if someone else is working on something in the church, you can come alongside them, encourage them, invite them over for tea, talk to them about how the Lord has worked in your life, pray with them about the ministry that they're doing, support them in some way. You all see the younger brothers and sisters in our church. I'm again, talking to my older brothers and sisters here. There are many of us younger individuals, younger families. We could use your encouragement. You've gone through life. You have walked in the Lord going through life, been married, struggled through life with young children. You see us walking about struggling through life with young children. Pull one of us up by the scruff of our neck and say, hey, come, come on, let's talk about this. Let me encourage you. Invite them over to your house for tea. But reach out. Engage. Do what you can do. Perhaps you're not going door to door or going out on a mission trip at this point in your life. But again, you can encourage others. You can teach others and you can pray. We have hundreds of missionaries that we support through the International Mission Board. If you are so inclined, you can be the one to help us to identify who they are. And keep those names before us so that we pray for them regularly as a body of Christ. You can do that. You can make sure our track rack out there is stopped. And that people have tracks in their hands as they leave out on Sunday morning so that they can hand out to their friends, co-workers, neighbors. Perhaps you work full time. There are significant demands that come along with that. I understand what that's like. That's been my life. Um. For many years now, even as an elder in various churches, but you too can find a support role. Maybe someone else, again, has started a ministry. You hear of a particular need, someone who needs a ride home or someone who needs a ride to church. Sacrifice, use your time, talents, and resources to do what you can. Maybe there's someone who would benefit from the skills that you have in the church. Offer those skills. Again, you don't have to be a leader, but we all have to be servants. Ask about what can be done. Seek to do something. Chris, our deacon Chris, owns his own business, but he comes to the church every week to clean the church. Other people can do that. He comes on his own time. He figures out the best time to do it. He comes to do it. Other people can do that. You can work around your schedule to do it. There are other needs that other brothers and sisters in Christ in the church have from time to time. You can set apart your time. Again, time when you have time. To do it. We all have needs. We all have family constraints. But we all also need one another to be able to grow. You could probably say the same for those who are parents. Look for ways that you can serve. Yes, serve in your families. Teach your children. Teach your children to be functioning members of the family. I think that's an important one. Because those who are trained at a young age to be functioning members of the family, having a part to play in the family, will then know what it's like to be a functioning member in the body of Christ later on. So that should be one of your goals. But again, do what you can do and be okay with being inconvenienced. Part of your teaching and training of your family, of your children, is letting them know that it's okay to be inconvenienced for the body of Christ because that's important to God. So it's important to you. So many other things I could say, brothers and sisters. Um, All of us could pray, right? We had a dear brother, um, our mentor, who in his retired years, retired, so to speak, 
uh, years while he was in stage four of cancer, he devoted himself to praying for some 130 plus people every single morning. By name, not just some general, hey, you know, pray for those people over there. But he prayed for each individual person by name every morning. He couldn't do a whole lot else, but he could do that. And he did that because he saw that as a part of his ministry. As weak and sick as he was, he labored in prayer for others. You can do that. We could talk about all kinds of things, beloved. There are all kinds of things that we can do and that we ought to do, all kinds of things that we would love to do as we're thinking about this next year, all kinds of ministry opportunities that we have, but we need people to serve. We need you to serve. I'll just say again, beloved, are you checked in? Are you walking in a manner worthy of your calling? Are you being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit by using your gifts? Are you engaged in the ministry, the service that Christ has given you? If you need help figuring out how to serve and what to do, please come ask me. I could probably rattle off five or six things that you could be doing. (laughs) Five or six things that, that we need to do, that we would love to do. We just need hands and feet to do it. I'd be glad to pray with you about it, talk with you about it, and put some, put some things in your hands to do. But the option of doing nothing is not on the table because Jesus doesn't give us that option. He has both called us and qualified us for much more than that. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth which sanctifies us. Father, I pray that you'd help us not to walk away from this passage of Scripture thinking that we are okay, thinking that we don't have to do anything because we've done our part, but help us to walk away from this passage of Scripture realizing that everything your church needs to accomplish its purposes has already been given to us in, the person, in, the, in, in each and every person that you've provided for this body. Help us to be convinced of that truth. Help us to be convicted by that truth. Help us to be encouraged by that truth. And to pursue the unity of the Spirit as we use our gifts, as we seek to make disciples of all nations for your glory. We pray this in Christ's blessed name. Amen.